still marveling at the Biden administration's coming proposal about making two-thirds of cars sold in America electric in less than a decade and what that can do stories we have to work on in the future. You're listening to Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with our State House and Politics Editor, Rick Ruan, as well as Courtney Astolfi and Lisa Garvin. This is Rick's last day of the week. We'll have Bob Higgs in the chair tomorrow and Layla Tassi returning Friday. Let's get back to one of our favorite topics, the East Palestine train wreck. It's a story that just keeps developing new threads, including, Lisa, a couple of strange ones this week. Who's accused of using the derailment for dishonest purposes? And how does Columbiana County now figure into this mess? Yeah, this is the, the hits just keep on coming. So first of all, an 18-wheeler that was carrying 40,000 pounds of contaminated soil from the derailment site overturned Monday afternoon on Ohio 165 in Columbiana County. It veered off the right side of the road and overturned, and so half of its load was spilled onto the berm and to the roadside. The driver just had minor injuries. The highway was closed between 617 and Ohio 14, but I believe it's back open now. So, so far, though, the EPA says 19,900 tons of toxic soil has been removed from the East Palestine site, and 11.4 million gallons of wastewater has also been removed. And they're saying it's about 40 to 45 trucks a day that are removing stuff from that site. And the second one, Attorney General Dave Yost is suing Ohio Clean Water Fund, and which is a charity, and its head, Mike Peppel. He alleges that they pocket $131,000 from 3,000 donors. The funds were supposed to provide aid and water through Second Harvest Food Bank in Mahoning Valley, but the food bank representatives told Yost they didn't authorize this partnership. They asked him a couple of times to stop mentioning them, and he didn't do it. So uh, Yost is seeking a temporary restraining in Georgia a temporary restraining order and a preliminary injunction to stop the fundraising and preserve the assets. Um, apparently they did raise $141,000. And after they were kind of questioned a couple of times, they ended up giving $10,000 to the food bank. So where the $131,000 went, Yost wants to know. It's amazing how these big news stories just automatically draw scammers. This isn't the first one. We had people knocking on doors out there that, the warning went out about. And it's just automatic that people see, mm -hmm. oh, distress, tragedy, let me profit from that and run in to collect big bucks. The The hauling issue was interesting. Our story detailed how a lot of states have tried to stop that contaminated soil from coming in to the point mm -hmm. that the EPA said, hey, you can't do that. Interstate commerce is part of our, our fabric. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that's the question. I mean, some people I mean, I think they were even going to put some of it not too far from East Palestine, you know, but there aren't that many places that take toxic waste. So, you know, yeah, it's it's a it's a problem. Yeah, there aren't that many. And once governors start saying, well, don't bring it to my state, there's a there's quite a bit of a cut in how many there are. Interesting how this story just keeps generating more and more news. You're listening to Today in Ohio. For parents wanting to send their kids to summer camps and other activities, what's the good news for their wallets and purses? Rick, I'm surprised at the huge percentage of the Ohio population that can get this. 
Yeah, uh, it sounds like most uh, families are actually going to be eligible for for this. Uh, so it's an, a state program uh, that has made even more money available to help pay for those activities and uh, made a, a lot more families eligible. It's called the After School Child Enrichment Program, and it has its roots in the loss of both learning and social opportunities during the pandemic. So previously, about $500 was available per school-age child, but it jumped last week to $1,000. And the eligibility guidelines uh, have also changed, which means that more families are going to be able to access that money. It's based on the federal poverty level. So under the old rules, children in a family of four earning up to $83,000 could access the funds. That's about three times the federal poverty level. That jumps to about $111,000 under the program change or four times the poverty level. So uh, some uh, students qualify no matter what. That includes kids in the Cleveland Metro School District. Uh, Those schools are going to be the ones that have problems with either chronic absenteeism or uh, low performing on uh, standardized tests. Uh, Anybody who's interested in taking advantage of the program can go to aceohio.org, that's A-C-E-Ohio.org, to see what activities are eligible. But the sort of things that it includes are tutoring, summer camp, music lessons, language lessons, and you know, as I said before, it started uh, in the pandemic. Uh, it was using federal coronavirus relief funds in 2021, but the state legislator voted in ex- December to expand the program. I had not heard of this before this story, so I was unaware, which makes me wonder how most of the public would find out about it. Do you think it's the schools and the music lessons and those that publicize this to try and let people know, hey, you can do this for a discount? That's a great question. I think there was, uh, you know, part of the reason that they're expanding the eligibility is that uh, it likely wasn't reaching enough people. And so it seems like they're trying to do a better job of marketing it this time around uh, so that families know that they can take advantage of it. Um, There's a a contractor that uh, administers the program and uh, they seem to be putting on a a little bit of a full court press so that people know the money. Yeah, it's a great deal. That's why we're talking about it so early in the podcast. I hope people take advantage of it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibbs' intriguing new idea to finally develop the Cleveland waterfront? Courtney, this is big, what he's proposing. I'm curious about how it'll work. Yeah, there is a lot of money Bibb announced in in his latest round of ARPA spending proposals. This is the last batch of the money the city really has to play with, large batch of money. And Bibb wants to put down several million toward developing the waterfront across the city, east, downtown. And he also wants to put money into the riverfront. And I think strikingly, we should start this conversation. We don't know how much money yet. He's looking to put $20 million overall into the waterfront. We don't know how much of that will be going towards it. But we know Bibb wants to stand up a waterfront development authority with this money. And that could mean big things for development along the lake. It would be, you know, another public body that would have authority to make decisions about Lake Erie development here. So this is the starting point. We'll have to see what this water development authority goes out and does, how it's received, if they're able to stand it up and get the approvals they need. But it's a down payment, uh, his chief of staff, Brad Davey, said on, on the waterfront's future. 
pretty much every neighborhood in Cleveland has some entity that advocates for it. Downtown, it's the Downtown Cleveland Alliance, and the neighborhoods, it's the CDCs. But if you talk to the people that have concerns along the lakefront, they don't have it. The DCA doesn't advocate for them. So they're kind of stepchildren out there without anybody to help steer the course. This sounds like this would change that, that you'd have a group fully focused on getting this thing moving, getting it to be an economic generator, getting it to be a place for recreation. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I expect that more details about how this would work will be forthcoming. In the meantime, Bibb's also proposing to put a lot of money down for some of those projects you can imagine the Waterfront Development Authority would help usher through. And I think that's important too, some startup money here. He wants to put $3 million towards a connector to Euclid Beach and um, some other money toward to expand the Euclid Creek Greenway north through the city of Cleveland. So they really want to focus on bringing more waterfront access to the east side of the city, which is obviously lactic compared to Edgewater and the west side. He also is looking to put a million and a half dollars to the early implementation of the Cheers project, that ambitious plan to build an island essentially off East 55th Street in the lake. He's looking to put $4 million towards the North Coast connector, that, that, that connection between downtown and the waterfront by the Brown Stadium. And he's looking to put $3 million towards huge infrastructure needs. This is only scratching the surface of what, what Dan Gilbert says he needs, but towards that bedrock development along the Cuyahoga County River. There's a lot of public money that Bedrock wants to see invested. He, he proposes putting three mil towards that. And there's also some money in there, Bib says, for the stabilization of Irish Town Bend. So there's a lot of lakefront money moving here on top of that seed money for the development authority. And of course, the big thing that's missing from this discussion is the football stadium. The Haslams, of course, are out there telling everybody they can that they have big visions for the lakefront and the football stadium. Cleveland does owe some kind of update to that football stadium, but that's not really being discussed as part of this lakefront authority. It'll be interesting to see when that element starts to rise into the conversation. Yeah, we know that debate's coming, how these pots of money intersect and and, and get us to the final product. We're going to have to wait and find out. Well, I think Justin Bibb knows because he knocked on a lot of doors that his constituents in the city really don't care about the football stadium. They care about the lakefront. And I think that might be why this is coming. I expect we'll hear a lot about this at the State of the City next week. He's going to have one that sounds like it's pretty powerful. Stay tuned. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With Opportunity Carter fully open for a while now, lots of drivers have to be wondering why a big IBM building at the corner of Cedar Road sits empty. It's prime property on the Cleveland Clinic campus with a huge parking lot that never has a vehicle in it in an area where parking is desperately needed. Lisa, this is one confusing story. Please sort it out for us. Yeah, let's see if I can. So uh, City Council President Blaine Griffin had openly wondered, you know, he drives by there a lot and he says, why is that parking lot always empty? So this is the IBM building at 105th and Cedar at the very north end of the Opportunity Corridor. It was only built in 2018. It's part owned by developer uh, Jim Doyle and Fred Geis, although it sits on Cleveland Clinic owned land. And uh, Doyle 
told cleveland.com that IBM is still leasing the building, but computer programmers are still working from home since the pandemic. So he said, like a lot of office buildings, it's not being fully utilized. But Doyle said he's not sure which division of IBM is leasing. So there was a Meritive, which was a, a biotech group that broke off from Watson Health. And um, he says that they never used that building. So who's in the building? We don't know. Um, we did reach out to the Cleveland Clinic, which owns the land, as I said, and we were referred to the Geis companies. They went through three executives, our reporters, and the last one declined to comment. IBM spokesperson Carrie Benza says they're still renting the building and some employees, employees use it regularly, but she declined to comment when asked about plans for the building. And she didn't say if Exploris, which is a data analytics firm that was spun off from the Cleveland Clinic, was using the building. So, But despite all this, Blaine Griffin says he's not really worried about this empty building or seemingly empty building. There's a Meyer store and apartments going up right across the street and the Stokes West development is nearby. He says if office space becomes available in that building, people will probably want it. And he actually sees Opportunity Corridor as the next big growth area for Cleveland. Yeah, that's the thing I don't understand. This is at the key locus of Opportunity Corridor. And I don't care what anybody says about people occasionally using the building. I never see a car there. I've been past there hundreds of times. It is completely and seemingly abandoned, which makes no sense. I'm surprised they don't lease out the parking. I mean, parking is a pain over in the Cleveland Clinic area. And this, they probably have 50, 60, 100 spaces. It's just odd, especially, as you said, with the grocery store and the apartments going up across the street. Prime, prime real estate going unused for a long time. Sean did his best to get to the bottom of it, but it was right. kind of hilarious when IBM says, yeah, yeah, I think we're leasing it. I don't know if we're leasing it. We don't really know <laughs> who's in there, you know, but um, also too, apparently they were approached by a nearby, uh, I guess it was a residential area that said, hey, we want to lease some of your parking spaces and they were turned down. So, and Doyle, the part owner says he hopes that IBM and others start bringing workers back to the office. He says, you know, the area will continue to thrive so he's not terribly worried at this point. Yeah, that parking, I think, is going to be at a bigger premium when those developments start to open because it's hard to see where people are going to park for them. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Rick, it seems like we brought you on the podcast just to talk about Jim Jordan. We have another development in the battle between Mr. Jordan and the New York prosecutor handling the Donald Trump hush money case. The New York prosecutor is not walking away from the fight. What's going on? So Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg on Tuesday filed a federal lawsuit that asked a judge to essentially tell Jim Jordan to butt out. Uh, here's the general background on this for those who haven't been following this super closely. Uh, Bragg rekindled an investigation into a $130,000 hush money payment from Trump to Stormy Daniels. And then last week, he brought 34 felony charges against Trump for falsifying business records. It's an unprecedented case. It's the first time a president has faced charges. So that's kind of the backdrop here. News of that investigation and the impending charges led Jordan, who's one of Trump's 
biggest allies on Capitol Hill to take several steps to defend him. Much of that's been a direct assault on Bragg's credibility and on the investigation itself, which Jordan says is politically motivated to hurt Trump's 2024 presidential campaign. And then Jordan, as chair of the House Judiciary Committee, has taken some official steps, too. He sent a subpoena to a former prosecutor in Bragg's office who worked on the investigation before resigning. He's also left open the possibility of subpoenaing Bragg himself. Next week, as we talked about uh, yesterday, Jordan plans to have a field hearing in New York where he's going to drag Bragg's uh, record on crime. So Bragg's lawsuit is seeking to stop the subpoenas, uh, calling Jordan's effort a, quote, unprecedentedly brazen and unconstitutional attack on the investigation. He says Jordan, who uh, you'll recall is the chairman of a subcommittee investigating weaponization of the federal government, is overstepping his authority and obstructing a local criminal investigation. The lawsuit has some pretty strong language in a few spots. Uh, There was one that jumped out uh, where it accuses Jordan of appointing Congress as a, quote, super grand jury that can flex its subpoena power (laughs) to second guess the judgment of New York citizens and interfere with the state criminal justice process. Of course, it was a New York grand jury that indicted Trump. Uh, which is what he's referencing there. So Jordan himself was pretty dismissive of the lawsuit. Uh, In a Twitter post, he said it was a legal effort to stop congressional oversight. We should be clear, though, that what Jordan is doing is pretty much unprecedented. Generally speaking, the criminal justice process is allowed to work itself out without external interference. And if you do try to interfere with a criminal prosecution, that can be a criminal charge. I, I cannot remember another criminal case in which Congress was getting involved before it had resolved itself. Once it's all over and, and you know, convicted, acquitted or whatever, you could hold a hearing. But this is an ongoing case and there's there's confidentiality in parts of it. There are things that have to happen. It'll be interesting to see if the judge takes a position on this, because this is really it's not just interfering with the prosecutor. It's interfering with this judge's courtroom and the court process. It's not appropriate. Everything about this is unprecedented, though, right? I mean, you have a former president who is indicted here. And when you take that step, as the Manhattan district attorney did, uh, you sort of invite uh, a uh, a circus into this, right? It, it's not just a criminal case now. It uh, There are politics that are involved here. And so uh, the, this becomes a, a lot bigger than just, you know, sort of your uh, garden variety criminal but case. But I think you edited the story where we examined whether Congress could pass a law exempting presidents from local prosecution in which a bunch of experts right. said, hey, look, th- th- what happens here is if it's an egregious prosecution, the courts work that out. That's why we have the court process. We don't in this case, it's almost like he's trying to stop that court process. Yeah, I, I don't know what his actual aim is here. I, I'm not sure if he really believes that he could stop the, the court process or if he is just trying to score political points for himself and for uh, Donald Trump. It, it's sort of hard to, to know. Uh, we've talked a lot this week about you know whether uh, what Jim Jordan is engaging in is mostly political theater. It's possible that that's what's happening here and it's not really about stopping the case itself. I'm glad we had you on the podcast this week because it's been Jim Jordan heavy and you edit all the Jim Jordan stories. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Courtney, you know how popular water parks are near Cedar Point because you worked over there. Now comes a tale of fraud and money laundering in the purchase of one water park, which now sits vacant. What are the details? Yeah, this is quite a, a scam. The The feds are charging. They've charged a Missouri man in energy Singh Grewal. He's of Branson, Missouri, and he's charged with fraud, money laundering, and along with an associate, they're accused of of pulling off this scheme at the Maui Sands Resort near Sandusky. It's it's if you drive route two regularly, you'll see it sitting there right off the highway at the Sandusky exit. You might be familiar with the property that way. It's one of a handful of water parks around the area. And and what we learned from federal prosecutors this week is that Grewal you know, he allegedly lied repeatedly to get a $7 million loan to buy the property. And this occurred in around 2018-ish. And and basically, right after he took this over, using what federal prosecutors said were just fraudulent documents up and down, misrepresenting how much money he had, and, and really telling the lender false things in order to secure this loan to buy the property. Basically, Maui Sands closed right after he bought it, and and you can see how it kind of stems from from what this guy did here. Prosecutor said Gruel has tried to pull off this scheme or has successfully executed similar schemes um, at an unnamed resort in nearby Huron, at, at a hotel in Spokane, Washington, and in a residential property in Florida. So it seems like these scams didn't just start in the Sandusky area. And after these places are closed for a few years, they get run down pretty quickly. So if this thing is just sitting, is the value of it just vanishing very quickly? Might it never open again? Yeah. And, and that's that's what struck me. Maui Sands, you know, back when, when I worked in Sandusky, that's my hometown, you know, Maui Sands was closed for several years. It first opened in 2008 and then abruptly closed in 2013. It, or, or sorry, it opened in 2008, abruptly closed, and then it reopened in 2013. And and so there's always been a question mark about what this big prime property, what its future is going to be. And in the meantime, you know, it, it was initially listed as a $6 million price tag when Gruel was first interested in buying it, supposedly. And then it dropped another million dollars in value because there was a massive water leak. So exactly what you're talking about, they're falling into disrepair. The part that upsets me the most is that the previous owner had someone on the line to buy it and Gruel took him out to dinner in Orlando, Florida, sweet talked him, claimed to have a ton of money and convinced them to sell it to him. There was another buyer on the on the hook here that this guy preempted and and he went forward. He he claimed he had a hundred to a three million dollar three hundred million dollar family trust. That wasn't true. He said he had $85 million worth of assets. That wasn't true. So it just seemed like it was a, a scam throughout. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting history. Be interesting to see where this ends up. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, is Ohio ever going to have a full-time school superintendent again? This has been pretty much a circus for a couple of years now. How is the state dealing with the looming departure of the current super? 
Well, basically, the Ohio Board of Education has put off hiring a search firm for a state superintendent of public instruction because they don't know what's going to happen in the legislature. There are two bills, Senate Bill 1 and House Bill 112, that will be changing the Ohio Department of Education to the Department of Education and Workforce to be led by a governor-appointed director in the governor's cabinet. So this new job, if these bills pass, would take over much of the duty of the current superintendent, which includes student testing, school funding, teacher licensing, and distributing private school vouchers and so on. So, uh, you know, they don't know. So they've put off that, you know, uh, recruitment and they've, this job has been open basically since September, 2021, when Paolo De Maria retired. And then Steve Dakin held the job for 11 days before he resigned in the midst of an ethics scandal. So they don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, this is really going to be a huge sea change for the Board of Education and the Department of Education. And the board also passed a resolution that condemns those bills. They say it removes the board's power and says it's unconstitutional because there was a 1953 voter-approved amendment that created an independent board of education and took that power away from the governor. So it's going right back to the governor. And they say that the board is actually the most transparent way to enact education policy, but there are 11 elected members on the school board and eight appointed by the governor. Most of the governor appointees voted no on this resolution. And Senator Andrew Brenner, the Republican from Delaware County and chair of the Senate Education Committee, says this resolution's too late. Senate Bill 1 has already passed the Senate and it is now in the House. There have already been four hearings on House Bill 112. And he says the State Board of Education is not holding the Department of Education accountable. Rick, the, 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 we thought this was going to pass pretty quickly, and I'm surprised it still hasn't. But given what they're saying about that 1950s amendment, is this very likely to end up in the courts? Well, you would have to have somebody uh, who wanted to bring the, the lawsuit first. I'm not sure how that would potentially work with the school board itself as a state entity, uh, possibly you know suing to stop a, a law from the, the state legislature. That would, that would be sort of interesting. They would have to first find uh, you know somebody who would be a, an aggrieved party in this and get them to, to bring it forward. Um, so it it's sort of unclear. I, I mean, you guys have, have all followed what's been happening with the, the state school board. There's a, certainly frustration on a lot of sides with how things have played out there over the, the last few but years. But if people voted to end that kind of a structure to create the school board structure, it does seem like it, it, the, the, the state would not have the power to unilaterally change it. it it's, it'll, it's, they're not going to appoint somebody, it looks like, because of all this stuff up in the air. I should point out, too, that our own Laura Hancock was the one that wrote heavily about that ethical issue involving the guy who had to leave. I don't know that he would have left had it not been for her very good coverage. Yeah. I don't know who would take this job uh, at this mm -hmm. point. I mean, with the, with the uncertainty uh, that uh, of what the job is going to look like, you know, potentially six months from now uh, you, you could be signing up for one thing and get something entirely different. I, I'm not sure that there there's any way to do a credible search at this okay. point. You're listening to today in Ohio. 
We've talked about all the money to be made on fracking in state parks, but environmentalists are worried about the long-term effects. What's the latest on a lawsuit to block the endeavor? Rick. So it wasn't good news for the environmentalists. A uh, Franklin County judge ruled uh, against a request for a temporary restraining order that would have halted a state law that sought to accelerate drilling in state parks. Uh, You'll remember that law fondly late last year as the chicken bill. It was the one that originally focused on poultry, but was amended at the last minute to call natural gas green energy and to make some changes designed to light a fire under the state commission that's supposed to be making rules for drilling in state parks. The law took effect last week. Uh, It makes a small but pretty significant change that compels state agencies to accept applications to drill for oil and gas under state parks until this commission develops its own rules. So the commission has largely been slow walked since the original law allowing for drilling in state parks passed in 2011. So this is a, a long time in the making. Uh, The judge cited public statements from Governor Mike DeWine's office in declining to issue the order pausing the law. The administration expects rules to be finished in early May, and DeWine's spokesman has told us that they expect drillers to wait until those are finished rather than to uh, put the state in a bind to have to decide on a lease offer without the rules in place. But you know, a, gel- a zealous uh, driller right now could file such an application, try to force the state's hand. We reported earlier this week about Encino Energy's offer last year before this new law took effect uh, to drill under Salt Fork State Park. And we know that they're still interested in doing that, but they uh, haven't yet filed another lease offer. So it's not necessarily the end of the road for the environmentalists. Next, they can seek a preliminary injunction, which similarly would put things on pause. And they say they're going to keep up the fight. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Courtney, is the market for high-end housing in Greater Cleveland catching some fire? Perhaps. We have a look this week at what homes are going for in March and that top tier of real estate. Really interesting. So Megan Sims reported that that of the top 10 priciest homes sold in March, all all went for at least 1.2 million and if you if you go back and look there were 16 homes total sold for more than 1 million in March compare that to just last month when only two homes topped 1 million dollars and compare that to March in 2022 a year ago when 10 homes also sold for $1.2 million or more, which is similar to what we saw last month. So I I don't know if this is the housing market recovering. I don't know if this is a seasonal change, right? We know the home buying gets, gets more popular during the warm weather, but we have a really interesting look at the highest valued property that went. It was in Hunting Valley, and this is the, the so-called Ravencrest Estate. It was previously owned by the late real estate mogul Scott Wolstein, and that went last month for at least $6 million. Now, it's worth noting it was it was listed at 15, and we don't have the final price tag here, but this is a huge mansion out there. It's 32,000 square feet, 150 acres, pool house, infinity pool, tennis court, I think it said 15 bathrooms. So so <laughs> that's at the really high end here. But Megan noted that two other homes went for at least $2 million last month, one in Cleveland and one in Moreland Hills. It's surprising given that mortgage rates are higher and mortgages on houses that expensive bring very high payments. Yeah, no, that's why I'm just wondering if this is maybe a, a seasonal thing as opposed to the market correcting w- with those high interest rates. 
Yeah, maybe. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Wednesday. Thanks, Rick, for being here the last three days. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast.